me. God, we believe that you came and dwelt among us as a man. We believe that you saw our sin condition and knew that we needed your forgiveness and your grace and your love. And we believe that you laid down your life as a ransom for many. And we believe that though you gave your life willingly, you took it back against the best efforts of sin, the grave and darkness, and you rose again on that Sunday morning to set us free. God, we praise you and thank you and ask that you would be with us as we celebrate you this morning and as we understand what it means to be a child of the risen King. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Awesome. Well, once again, Happy Easter. It is so good to see you. We're glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. And uh, typically, when we start a worship service, we open up God's Word together, and we cheer and applaud and clap because we believe that there is power in the Word of God. Today, I want to do something just a little bit different. Uh, we also believe that the Bible says Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. He came and took on flesh, and yet He is the very Word of God. He's what we're celebrating today. So if you would, instead of us cheering for opening God's Word together, let's actually cheer for Jesus this morning, that He is alive. And, uh, and so we've had a lot. Yeah. We've already had a lot to celebrate as we sing, but we have a Savior who is alive and who has given us hope because of His resurrection. And so we're thankful for that this morning. Uh, by show of hands... Let me ask if you would to tell me, how many of you remember the days before dry erase boards and you actually remember chalkboards and, and erasers, like the ones that literally got caked? Yeah, a lot of us. Good. All right. So some of you kids in the room are like, what? What is a chalkboard? What is that? That's weird, right? Chalk is something you play with on the sidewalk outside, not something you write with on a board. And so what we did as kids, though, uh, we would have these chalkboards. And you remember the other part of the chalkboard was the eraser. You remember that? And so at the end of a class or whatever, you erase everything off the board, and then this eraser is just covered in chalk dust, right? And then some lucky kid gets to be the one at the end of the day to take all the erasers outside, and what do you have to do with the erasers? Yeah, that's right. All of us like clapping. Yeah. You're going to bang the erasers together. Uh, you might slam them on the ground. If you were, you know, baseball player like I was, you might use them to throw baseball, you know, target practice, whatever. Uh, but the idea was that once you got all the chalk out, you would come back into the classroom and that poor kid would always be just chalky white, right? Stuff in his hair, on his clothes. And, and so you've just got a mess on your hands. Well, this morning, what I want us to talk about and think about uh, also has to do with something else that a chalkboard might do. Does anybody remember getting in trouble as a kid in class and having to miss recess because you had to stay in and write on the chalkboard? Anybody? Only me? Thanks, Kyle, for being honest there. Good. Me and Kyle are the only two people in the room that ever made a mistake in school. Uh, yeah, you had to stay inside and write, like, I will not talk while Miss Smith is teaching, right? Not once, not ten times, fifty times. If you're a repeat offender, 75 times, 100 times, like whatever it was. And so at the end of this, you know when you're finished, your classmates are coming back in. And your sins are all up on the board in front of everybody, right? And so you're worried because you're like, they're going to come in and know how stupid I was and what I did. And it's going to be public for the whole world to see. Well, if you had a good teacher, they would probably hand you an eraser and go, hey, listen, before everybody comes back in, why don't you erase that off, get rid of it, and I forgive you. But don't let that happen again, right? And the beauty of the eraser is that it takes our mistakes 
It takes those things that we've revealed and been made public, the things that we know are happening in our life that are exposed for the world to see, and an eraser makes it disappear. Here's the beauty of the cross. Here's the beauty of what we're celebrating today. The cross is the ultimate eraser. The cross takes the sin in your life and in my life. It takes the mistakes that we make. It takes all the imperfections that exist in us. And because of God and His grace and Jesus and His goodness, He says, listen, I see your sins. I see your mistakes. I see the problems in your life. But I've made a way to erase all of that. I've made a way to make your sins disappear. You are forgiven. And here's the other part of the beauty of the cross. Not only does God erase our mistakes, but He also forgives us. And then He forgets. He forgets. He doesn't continue to hold your past against you. He doesn't continue to hold your sins up in front of you and go, remember when you did this stupid thing? Every time you mess up, God's not kicking you again and going, this was a mistake, look what you did wrong. He forgives us. And the Bible says that He forgets. The beauty of the cross is that we're forgiven and God Forgets. Let me read you a couple of passages of Scripture to help us see this. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, Isaiah wrote and said, I, even I, he's, this is God speaking through Isaiah, he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. That word transgressions, we don't use that a whole lot. That just means sin. He says, I blot out your sin for my own sake, and I remember your sin no more. That when I forgive, it's forgotten, it's done with. Then Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God is so good to not only forgive us of our sins, but then to wash it away, to forget it completely, to let it go. He doesn't harbor animosity against you. He doesn't hold judgment against you. He forgives. He forgives entirely. And then He forgets. Have you ever been forget, for, uh, excuse me, have you ever been forgiven of something and you didn't deserve it? You didn't deserve somebody to forgive you? Man, I've had times like that. I can remember one instance in particular uh, when I was a, a college student and was working um, as a volunteer with a, a church, and we did something really stupid with uh, some kids in our youth group. It was just dumb. It was a hugely dumb mistake, like a college kid tends to make every now and then. And we got busted in a big way, and my pastor called me into the office. This is way worse than going called to the principal's office. If the pastor calls you and says, you need to be in my office this afternoon, you're in big trouble, mister, right? And it is a bad, bad deal. And he laid out the whole thing for us. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what's going on, the mistakes that you made. And we were just as guilty feeling as we could possibly be. And I'll never forget, at the end of that whole thing, he looked at us and he goes, guys, it was me and one other guy. He said, guys, listen, I forgive you, and we are never going to mention this again. And to his credit... He never did. He never brought it up again. He still to this day is a guy that's on my resume as a, as a referral for somebody. He wants to help me in ministry and succeed, and he's never held against me something that I did that was stupid and could have caused big trouble. So if you've ever been in a place where you've done something and you feel like because of what I did, there can't be forgiveness. 
There's no way I could be forgiven for that. Here's the beauty of the cross. You can be forgiven. In fact, you are forgiven. There's a story that I was reminded of not too long ago, and, uh, or I saw it several years ago and was reminded of recently, uh, that I wanted to show you a video this morning just to let you see a story of two men. Uh, and it doesn't really need a lot of introduction because it explains itself very well, but I will say this, because it involves a police officer, and in our culture today, police officers get bashed pretty hard when they make mistakes. And this is not about showing someone and going, see, look how terrible our justice system is, or look at how bad this police officer is. That's not what this is about. This isn't a shaming thing at all. This is about looking at a story that shows the power of two men who have an interaction. And it costs both of them, but then forgiveness is made available. And it will help us tie in this morning what we're talking about. So I want you to take a minute and watch this video. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You're saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim. But not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Yeah, basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamal was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey, guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, you know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. Uh, he, I don't deserve that, you know. Did you forgive for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder <laughs> mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. I'll grab this one, set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? Can you imagine the power of forgiveness that comes when you experience something that's undeserved? This guy didn't deserve to be forgiven, and he said as much. I didn't deserve that. 
I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't deserve to be forgiven for what I had done. And yet the power of the cross of Jesus is that that's our story. We don't deserve to be forgiven. But we have a God who loves us so much and who made a way for us to know His power, to know His forgiveness, that even though we don't deserve it, it's available to us. And so this morning what I want us to do is look at two men in Scripture that both had an encounter with Jesus after the resurrection. That we're not going to explain in detail the resurrection of Jesus this morning. That's probably a story that you've heard uh, over and over again. But I want us to look this morning at the power of the forgiveness that's available to us on this side of the cross and on this side of the tomb. And so I want us to talk about Peter and I want us to talk about Saul this morning because these two guys had an encounter with Jesus that changed their life. Now, Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the twelve. Not only was he one of the twelve, the Bible says that there were three who were part of the inner circle of Jesus. That they had come into a place where Jesus had brought them to an even closer relationship with him. To say, I want you to, to be in closer proximity and fellowship with me. And then Peter was probably, above and beyond that, Peter was probably Jesus' closest friend on earth. And so on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, and the night that he's going to be uh, taken to trial and crucified, he tells Peter, hey, Peter, listen, tonight you're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, no, 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 that's never going to happen. There's no way that I'm ever going to do that. I would die for you before I'd ever deny you. And so Jesus says, listen, before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. Later that night, Jesus is arrested. He's taken off to Caiaphas' house, the house of the high priest, and he's put on trial. And Peter, when all the other disciples scattered and fled, Peter at least was brave enough to follow Jesus to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. And the Bible says that he was standing by a fire outside in the courtyard when some people started to come up to him and go, hey, you look familiar. You were with Jesus. You're one of his followers. And three times Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is. No, no, no. That's not me. I didn't know him. That's somebody else. You got the wrong people. That's, that's not who I am. I'm not with Jesus. And three times he denies him. The Bible says that after his third denial, then in the distance he heard a rooster crow. And Jesus actually walked through the courtyard and they see each other. And Peter remembered in that moment what Jesus had said. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And the Bible says that when that happened, Peter fled from the courtyard, that he went and he wept bitterly, that he knew he had let Jesus down, that he knew in the moment of Jesus' greatest need that he had given up and that he had messed up. And then the Bible tells us something really powerful about this moment. Because how would you feel if you had denied your best friend in his greatest hour of need? What would you feel like? He's never going to want to talk to you again, right? That person's never going to want to see you again. You're outside of their inner circle now. You are not part of the team anymore. And that's how Peter felt. Peter felt like he was not allowed to be part of the team anymore. He was out. What's fascinating is, and you heard Andy tell the story at the beginning of the service, about two women who came to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And they came to the tomb. They were going to anoint Jesus' body because he had been buried quickly on the Sabbath, so his body had not been prepared for burial. They were going to come and prepare his body for burial. But when they got there, the stone was already rolled away, and there was an angel at the tomb. And the angel said, Hey, listen, Mary, and Mary, you go back to Jerusalem. You tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is alive and that he wants to see them. The angel specifically mentions Peter. He says, Listen, you go back, tell Peter. Make sure you express to Peter. Because Peter thinks... 
He can't be loved anymore by Jesus. Peter thinks he's out of the inner circle. Peter thinks he's done for. No more ministry for him. Make sure you tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus wants to see him. And the angel specifically mentions him. And so Peter's there. He encounters Jesus. And then a couple of days later, there's an actually uh, a private moment that Peter and Jesus share together. And I want to just recount this with you because the disciples have been out fishing overnight. And they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus, raised from the dead, he walks out onto the shore. They're off in the boat in the distance. And he yells out to them from the shore, have you caught anything? And they say, no, we've been fishing all night. He says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And so they did. And all of a sudden, a huge catch of fish. They start to pull in all these fish. And somebody looks and goes, guys, that's Jesus on the shore. See, Jesus had done this same miracle once before. He had already done this with the disciples one time before. And so they see this happen and they look and they go, that's him. That's Jesus. He's back. And the Bible says that Peter jumped into the water and swam to the shore to go and to meet Jesus. And when he got there, this is what unfolds. Jesus has made breakfast for them. And John chapter 21 says this. When they had finished eating... Simon, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, let's stop there for just a second. What's, what are the these he's talking about? There's a lot of people who have different thoughts about this, but really I think primarily this is it. He's, he's, they've brought the fish in to the beach. And I think Jesus looks and goes, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? See, Peter was a fisherman before he met Jesus. And, and now that he thinks he can no longer play a part in Jesus' team, what's he back doing? He's back fishing again. And so Jesus says to him, Hey, Peter, I need to know something. Do you love me more than fish? Because I remember calling you, Peter, and I didn't call you to fish anymore. I called you to be a fisher of men. I have a a different job for you lined up. So, Peter, I have to ask you, do you love me more than these fish? Because you're going right back to what it used to be that you did. And so Peter says, You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, Feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Then take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt now because Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? Can you see Peter's head just hanging? He feels shame and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. It was thought that Peter, or it's tradition says and history says that Peter died the same way that Jesus did, that he was crucified. And so Peter was given the death of crucifixion. So Jesus says, listen, Peter, at the end of your life, that's what it's going to be. And then he says, then he looked at him and said, follow me. Listen, this is beautiful because three times... Peter denied Jesus. And three times Jesus came back and said, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, look at me. Do you love me? And Jesus, in that moment, offers forgiveness for Peter. And He doesn't do it by beating Peter up. He doesn't bring up all the mess of his past. He doesn't kick him around. He doesn't make him feel shame. Jesus uses His example of love to show forgiveness to Peter. I think that's something important that we need to know. Here's what we need to understand. The first truth statement of today is this, that God's forgiveness comes when we least deserve it. Jesus said to Peter, listen, follow me. 
And the reason he said that, the reason the call of follow me, this was something he had told Peter and the other disciples before. But this time, he's talking about it in the course of his death. He's just told him, hey, when you were young, you put on clothes, you went where you want to go. When you're old, somebody else is going to dress you, and they're going to lead you where you don't want to go. And they're going to stretch out your hands. He's talking about the kind of death that Peter would endure. And he's saying, listen, Peter, the first time I called you and I said, follow me, and you came all the way into Caiaphas' court, but then you stopped there and then you denied me. So, Peter, here's what I want you to know. The forgiveness that I'm making available to you is now a new invitation. Follow me, and Peter, this time, follow me all the way to death, if that's what it takes. You go all the way, Peter. If you're going to be with me, you're going to be all in. And so he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then follow me. Follow me. And so we see all of this happen. And Peter had denied Jesus during his greatest time of need. And he thought he disqualified himself from ministry, but Jesus invites him to follow him all the way to death. And I love that Jesus didn't force an apology out of Peter. He never gets Peter on the spot and goes, Peter, all right, you screwed up. Just ask me to forgive you. It'll all be done. Peter, Jesus doesn't force an apology. Instead, he reinforces his love. He doesn't beat Peter up. He just goes, hey, Peter, remember, this is a love relationship. So do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than anything else in your life? Do you love me? Then follow me. He doesn't beat Peter up. He reinforces his love. Here's the second person I want us to look at this morning. It's a guy named Saul. Some of us know him as Paul. He would become that. But in this story, he's still not met Christ yet. He hasn't met the risen Jesus yet. And so Saul was a guy that persecuted the church. Uh, in fact, he was a Pharisee who was on his way to the upper echelon of being a Pharisee. He was on the fast track to being one of the, the uh, highest ranking Pharisees that there was in Jewish culture. And in the middle of Jesus' life, he starts to hate the people who begin to follow Jesus. And he doesn't want anybody to proclaim that Jesus is God because his zealousness for the law says that anyone who proclaims to be God should be killed. That's what got Jesus in trouble in the first place. Jesus at his trial, the only thing that got him in trouble was that he claimed deity. That he claimed to be the Son of God. And so when John, or excuse me, when Saul comes along, Saul hates those people who are following after Jesus. To the point that he stands in, and holds people's clothes while they murder uh, Stephen, who was one of the first deacons in the church. And Saul gives approval to that. And then Saul goes crazy against the church and he wants to destroy it. So listen to what happens in Acts chapter 9, starting verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who were belonging to the way, those are the Christians, the church, whether it was men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and I will tell you what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. 
And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to the, body, uh, to the holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my glory and my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So you see this story of Saul. And here's a man who he wasn't looking for God. In fact, he hated that Jesus had claimed to be God. He was trying to kill anyone who stood for Jesus, who worshipped Jesus. And he had all the papers to do that. And what you find is that this man, who had a passion for killing people who followed after Jesus, found forgiveness in a way that's amazing. And so here's the second statement this morning, that God's forgiveness comes when we least expect it. He wasn't expecting to find Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus with documents in hand to kill Christians. And on his way there, he encounters the risen Christ. Jesus stops him in his track, says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And then he puts Saul in his place. He says, listen, I've got something else for your life. I'm going to call you into relationship with me. I know you don't expect relationship with me, but that's what's being offered. And so Saul meets Christ. And for us, maybe that's the same thing for you this morning. Maybe you don't expect God to offer you forgiveness. Maybe you look at your life and you think you don't even deserve that forgiveness. But God's glory, His grace, His forgiveness comes to us when we least deserve it and when we least expect it. And most of the time, what I've found is that when we least expect forgiveness, that's when it means the most. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? That it means the most when you don't expect it to happen? Like there are some people in your life that you know. You've proven over and over again. You can do something stupid. You can ask for forgiveness and they're going to forgive you. Maybe it's your parents that you just know. It's over and over and over and over and over. You continue to abuse that relationship. But you know anytime you come back and say, I'm sorry, they're going to forgive you and bring you back into their good graces. There's other people maybe that you would look at and say, you know what? I don't expect that because of what I've done, they could ever forgive me. And maybe you've put that same expectation on God. Said, I don't expect because of what I've done in my life that God would ever love me, that He could ever forgive me. I don't expect that. And yet the cross of Jesus and the power of Easter is that that kind of forgiveness is available to you whether you expect it or not. It's there. Paul's life was radically altered because of the forgiveness that he experienced. It changed everything. One more passage of Scripture to look at. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is Paul writing. He was Saul. 
His Greek name would have been Paul. So as he writes in the New Testament to Greek believers, he's writing to the churches. And in Corinth, he writes this and says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's what you received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. And so Paul's reminding him to go and remember Peter, the guy that didn't think Jesus could love him anymore. He says, let's remember this. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he also appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all to me as to one who is abnormally born. A couple of things here for a second. There are people in this Easter season who might say some things and go, this stuff that you guys as Christians believe is a little bit crazy. And let's just acknowledge that for a minute. We believe that God came to earth as a man, fully man and fully God, completely divine and yet fully human, that he lived a completely sinless life. We believe that. We believe that Jesus committed no sins whatsoever. How many people in the world believe that about somebody? We believe that. And then we believe that he was killed, even though he was sinless, that he had never done anything wrong, that he was murdered, that he was killed. He gave up his life. He was crucified. The worst possible death someone could experience. And then we believe that after enduring that, that he came back to life. We believe crazy things, right? And maybe you're here today and going, I know, that's the only reason I only come on Easter is because y'all believe crazy things. I'm just here to make my parents happy today. Y'all can keep your craziness. Paul is telling these people as he's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand something. Jesus came back to life. We believe that. That's part of the gospel. He came back to life and he appeared to Peter. Ask him about it. Ask Peter, first person account. Then he appeared to all the disciples. Ask him about it. Then he appeared to James. Ask him about it. And, and to me even, as to one abnormally born. He says, I wasn't even part of the original group. Jesus sought me out and stopped me in my tracks and brought me into relationship with him. That is an abnormal birth into this Christian movement. And then he says this. He goes, and also, just in case that's not good enough for you, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. And most of them are still living, so go ask them if this is true or not. This is one of those things that helps us understand, was Jesus a made-up story or not? I mean, did the 12 disciples, did those closest to him just make up stories about his, his resurrection to keep their movement going? Is that what's happening here? Well, Paul says, listen, if you want to ask, go, go ask 500 people who saw Jesus at one time. Now, there are people who would say, okay, well, we can explain that one away. There was this mass hallucination that took place, and they all thought they saw Jesus. Well, let me just try to help figure this one out for just a second. Uh, I've never done drugs before, um, probably because if you do, sometimes if you do drugs, there's hallucinations involved in that. And I have enough problem with the real world. I don't need crazy things happening in my life. But let's say that you and I both do drugs and we both hallucinate. What is the possibility that we're going to both have the same hallucination? And Paul's saying, look, there were 500 people who saw Jesus at one time. And the skeptics of Christianity say, oh, yeah, yeah, mass hallucination. Has that ever happened at any other point in time in history? Would you ever explain any other event by, oh, yeah, mass hallucination? Oh, it happens all the time. No, it doesn't. It doesn't happen ever. 
And so he says, listen, if you want to know if this story that we're talking about is real, go ask the people who saw it. They were there. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And I am an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. He stopped me and called me into relationship with him. I didn't expect it, but it happened and it changed my life. And then he goes on and he concludes the the chapter here, the verses here. He says, I'm the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And to his grace, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And whether then it is they or I, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. I love what Paul says here at the very end. He says, God's grace to me was not without effect. God's grace to me, the forgiveness that I found in Christ, had a huge result. The effect of God's grace, His forgiveness being extended to Paul, was He says, I shouldn't even be here. I'm not worthy of this. I'm the last one who God should have called into relationship. I was killing people who liked Jesus. Not just I didn't like them, we didn't get along. I was trying to imprison them and kill them for their association with Jesus. I don't belong in this group. And yet God, because of His grace, has called me into that relationship and His grace to me was not without effect. Let me tell you something. When you experience the forgiveness of Jesus that you don't deserve and that you don't expect, when you experience it, It has great effect on your life. It changes everything. The grace of God changes everything. Paul. How did it change him? Paul becomes the greatest missionary that we've ever known. Paul ends up writing the majority of the New Testament. So when we read Scripture and we look at the New Testament, we go, what what do we know about God? How do we have writings to the church? How do we function and operate as believers in Christ? Paul wrote the majority of what we read in the New Testament. You see, this grace that was extended to him had a huge effect on his life. When you accept God's forgiveness, the effect to you will be a deep sense of new purpose and new hope. That's the result. That's the result. The question is, will you accept it? The question for us is, what will we do when we come into relationship and come into close proximity with Jesus and the forgiveness that's made available to us by the cross? Here's the last thing that I want to talk about. This is the, the kind of the close-up. This bothered me about the story a little bit of both Peter and of Saul. Jesus never expressly says to them, hey, I forgive you. Never does. Isn't that, those are good words, right? When you've done something stupid and you go and apologize, you hope to hear when you apologize, I forgive you. And if somebody just kind of goes, thanks for that apology, and then they turn and walk away, you're like, uh, okay, Am I, did they forgive me? Are we okay now? Like, ugh, I'm stuck, right? Jesus never says to Peter or to Saul, hey, I know you did something stupid. I forgive you. Instead, with Peter, he reinforces his love. To Saul, he stops him in his tracks and goes, that's enough, big boy. I've got a different plan for you. But he never expressly says, I forgive you. And if that bothers you, I would just simply say one thing. The reason Jesus doesn't have to say, I forgive you verbally and express that is because of the cross. The cross says, I forgive you. 
When Jesus, hanging on the cross, yelled out and cried out before he gave up his spirit, it is finished. That was Jesus saying, I forgive you. It's done. I've paid for sin. I've taken your guilt. I've taken your sin. I've taken your mess. I've taken all the stuff that you've done that you think nobody could ever love you or forgive you because of. I've taken that and I forgive you. The cross is Jesus' tool of forgiveness. And so when we see Jesus in our life, and maybe that's bothered you, that you go, I don't see, I don't hear Jesus saying, I forgive you. I don't know if he's forgiven me. I don't know. All you have to do is look at the cross and say, you're forgiven Because of the cross, you're forgiven. And because Jesus came back to life, you have hope. You have relationship with God. And so this morning, the last thing that I want us to see is this. Because of the cross, forgiveness is available to you. The celebration of Easter is the ultimate expression of forgiveness by the one person who's been wronged more than anyone. No one's been wronged in history more than God. No one. And yet He still extends forgiveness. Maybe you don't think you deserve it. Maybe you don't think you were coming here today expecting it. But it's available. The forgiveness that Jesus offers, the love that He has, the grace and the mercy to you is available because of the cross. The cross is the ultimate eraser. And today, the one question you have to ask yourself is, have I accepted the forgiveness that's available to me? Have I taken that? Or do I still feel like Forgiveness can't happen to me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what's happened in my life. I can't be forgiven. The cross says otherwise. So I want to just invite you to pray with me this morning. And as we pray, I want to give you just a minute to ask that one question. And just think in your own mind, in your own heart, have I truly accepted the forgiveness that's available to me? I know I don't deserve it. I didn't come here today expecting it. But I feel the power of God tugging at me and saying, I forgive you. The cross is His expression of forgiveness. Have you embraced that forgiveness? It's available to you. And my challenge to you this morning would be that you don't leave this building without talking to me, without talking to one of our leaders, Certainly not without making it right with God in in your own personal way. Just saying, God, I need your forgiveness. I want it. I don't deserve it. I didn't expect it, but I want it. It's available to you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are so good. You sent your only son to this earth to take our place. In the past, there had to be a sacrifice for sins. Year after year after year, a lamb had to die for the sacrifice to be made and to keep the covenant relationship you had formed alive and that the forgiveness would be through that lamb. But in this new covenant era, this this new contract that you've established with us, you sent your son to be the lamb. He is the one and only sacrifice for our sins. There's no other way to get into a relationship with you. There's no other way to have forgiveness. And we know that. God, I pray that there would be people this morning who would accept the forgiveness that you offer to them. That they would be willing to say, today I want forgiveness.
my life for my sins and that they'll know that you have truly forgiven them and forgotten everything, giving them a fresh start, a new hope. So we trust that you'll do that today. We ask and pray.